Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Hope you're all having a fantastic day today. This is it y'all. We've made it to the finale of the podcast for now. I might bring it back at some point. But um, these next three days are going to be the, the very big, very uh, climactic finale of the podcast. Uh, as you know, this past week we were talking about a bunch of influential uh, LGBTQ plus activists that have made an impact on the community as a whole. We talked about Harvey Milk. We talked about Gilbert Baker. We talked about Alisa Nikom. We talked about Alexia Salvador. We talked about Edith Windsor. We talked about Sylvia Rivera. And we talked about Marsha P. Johnson. Um... And now, we are going to talk about the event, the catalyst, if you will, of the modern LGBTQ movement, and the spark of the civil rights, uh, of the gay liberation movement, essentially, of, of the LGBT community coming together and saying, you know what, enough is enough, we deserve rights too. This was the event that inspired all of that, even to today. And that is the Stonewall Riots, otherwise known as the Stonewall Uprising, or the Stonewall Rebellion. Whatever name you want to give it, this event is one of the most important events in our history. And it's very, very important that we remember it, and that we continue to talk about it, so that way it's not forgotten. But anyway, let us commence with the episode. The Stonewall Riots, also referred to as the Stonewall Uprising or the Stonewall Rebellion, were a series of spontaneous, violent demonstrations by members of the LGBTQ community in response to a police raid that began in the early morning hours of June 28, 1969 at the Stonewall Inn in the Greenwich Village neighborhood of Manhattan, New York City. Uh, patrons of the Stonewall, other, lesbian, other village lesbian and gay bars, and neighborhood street p- people fought back when the police became violent. The riots are widely considered to constitute one of the most important events leading to the gay liberation movement and the modern fight for LGBTQ plus rights in the United States. Very, very, very cool. Um, Okay. Gay Americans in the 1950s and 60s faced an anti-gay legal system. Early homosexual groups in the U.S. sought to prove that gay people could be assimilated into society, and they favored non-confrontational education for homosexuals and heterosexuals alike. The last years of the 1960s, however, were contentious as many social-slash-political movements were active, including the civil rights movement, the counterculture of the 1960s, and the anti-Vietnam War movement. These influences, along with the liberal environment of Greenwich Village, served as the catalyst for the Stonewall Riots. Very few establishments welcomed gay people in the 1950s and 60s. Those that did were often bars, although bar owners and managers were rarely gay. At the time, the Stonewall Inn was owned by the Mafia. It catered to an assortment of patrons and was known to be popular among the poorest and most marginalized people in the gay community. Butch lesbians, effeminate young men, drag queens, male prostitutes, transgender people, and homeless youth. 
While police raids on gay bars were routine in the 1960s, officers quickly lose con lost control of the situation at the Stonewall Inn on June 28th. Tensions between New York City police and gay residents of Greenwich Village erupted into more protests the next evening, evening and again several nights later. Within weeks, village residents quickly organized into activist groups to concentrate efforts on establishing places for gay men and lesbians to open up about their sexual orientation without fear of being arrested. After the Stonewall riots, gay men and lesbians in New York City faced gender, race, class, and generational obstacles to becoming a cohesive community. Within six months, two gay activist organizations were formed in New York, concentrating in, on confrontational tactics, and three newspapers were established to promote rights for gay men and lesbians. A year after the uprising, to mark the anniversary of on June 28, 1970, the first gay pride marches took place in New York, Los Angeles, and San Francisco. The anniversary of the riots was also co commemorated in Chicago, and similar marches were organized in other cities. Within a few years, gay rights organizations were founded across the U.S. and the world. The Stonewall National Monument was established at the site in 2016. Um, today, LGBT Pride events are held annually throughout the world toward the end of June to mark the Stonewall riots. Stonewall 50 World Pride in NYC 2019 commemorated the 50th anniversary of Stonewall Uprising within, with city officials estimating 5 million attendees in Manhattan. And on June 6, 2019, New York City Police Commissioner James P. O'Neill rendered a formal apology on behalf of the New York Police Department for the actions of its officers at Stonewall in 1969. Alright, now let's go into to a little background. Homosexuality in the 20th Century United States Following the social upheaval of World War II, many people in the United States felt a fervent desire to restore the pre-war pre social order and hold off the forces of change, according to historian Barry Adam. Spurred by the national emphasis on anti-communism, Senator Joseph McCarthy conducted hearings searching for communists in the United States government and the United States Army and other government-funded agencies and institutions, leading to a national paranoia. Anarchists, communists, and other people deemed un-American and subversive were considered security risks. Gay men and lesbians were included in the list by the U.S. State Department on the theory that they were susceptible to blackmail. In 1950, a Senate investigation chaired by Clyde R. Huey, Noted in a report, quote, it is generally believed that those who engage in overt acts of perversion lack the emotional stability of normal persons, unquote. And said all of the government's intelligence agencies, quote, are in complete agreement that sex perverts in the government, in government constitution and government constitute security risks, unquote. Between 1947 and 1950, 1,700 federal job applications were denied, 4,380 people were discharged from the military, and 420 were fired from the government jobs for being suspected of homos uh, for being suspected homosexuals. Throughout the 1950s and 60s, the U.S. Federal Bureau of Investigation, or the FBI, and police departments kept lists of known homosexuals, their favorite establishments, and friends. The U.S. Post Office kept track of addresses where material pertaining to homosexuality was mailed. 
State and local governments followed suit. Bars catering to gay men and lesbians were shut down, and their customers were arrested and exposed in newspapers. Cities performed sweeps to neighborhoods, parks, bars, and beaches of gay people. They outlawed the wearing of opposite-gendered clothing, and universities expelled instructors suspected of being homosexual. In 1952, the American Psychiatric Association listed homosexuality in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the DSM as a mental disorder. A large-scale study of homosexuality in 1962 was used to justify the inclusion of the disorder as a a, a supposed pathological hidden fear of the opposite sex caused by traumatic parent-child relationships. This view was widely influential in the medical profession. In 1956, however, the psychologist Evelyn Hooker performed a study that compared the happiness and well-adjusted nature of self-identified homosexual men with heterosexual men and found no difference. Her study stunned the medical community and made not her a hero to many gay and lesbians, but homosexuality remained in the DSM until 1974. Homophile Activism in response to this trend, two organizations formed independently of each, of each other to advance the, gay, the cause of gay men and lesbians and provide social opportunities where they could socialize without fear of being arrested. L.A. area homosexuals created the Madison Society in 1950 in the home of communist uh, activist um, Harry Hay. Their objectives were to unify homosexuals, educate them, provide leadership, and assist sexual deviants with legal troubles. Facing enormous opposition to their radical approach, in 1953, the Madison shifted their focus to assimilation and respectability. They reasoned that they would change more minds about homosexuality by proving that gay men and lesbians were normal people, no different from from heterosexuals. Soon after, several women in San Francisco met in their living rooms to form the Daughters of or the DOB, for lesbians. Although the eight women who created the DOB initially came together to be able to have a safe safe place to dance, as the DOB grew, the develop- they developed similar goals to the Madison and urged their members to assimilate into general society. One of the first challenges to government r- repression came in 1953. An, an organization named One Inc. published a magazine called One, the U.S. Postal Service refused to mail its August issue, which concerned homosexual people in heterosexual marriages, on the grounds that the material was obscene despite it being covered in brown paper wrapping. The case eventually went to the Supreme Court, which in 1958 ruled that one ink could mail its materials through, postal, through the postal, postal services. Homophile organizations as homosexual groups self-identified in this era grew in number and spread to the East Coast. Gradually, members of these organizations grew bolder. Frank Kameny founded the Madison of Washington, D.C. He had been fired from the U.S. Army MAP service for being a homosexual and sued unsuccessfully to be reinstated. Kameny wrote that homosexuals were no different from heterosexuals often aiming his efforts at mental health professionals, some of whom attended Madison and DOB meetings telling members they were abnormal. In 1965, news on Cuban prison work camps for homosexuals inspired Madison, New York, and D.C. to organize protests at the United Nations and the White House. Similar demonstrations were then held at at other government buildings. The purpose was to 
protest the treatment of gay people in Cuba and U.S. employment discrimination. These pickets shocked many gay people and upset some of the leadership of the Madison and the DOB. At the same time, demonstrations in the civil rights movement and opposition to the Vietnam War all grew in prominence, frequency, and severity throughout the 1960s, as did their confrontations with police forces. Okay. Um, so yes, these problems were rampant throughout the 40s and the 50s, and especially the 60s, where there were all these groups coming out of the coming coming to light to try to inform people that like we are no different from you. Uh, just because you say we're mentally ill does not make it true. Just because you say that we don't deserve the same rights as you because we have to be different from you, that's not true. We are people just like you. We are normal. Nothing about us is different or weird or perverse. If we are literally just people trying to live our lives. But regardless, uh, earlier resistance and riots. On the outer fringes of the new small gay communities were people who challenged gender expectations. They were effeminate men and masculine women, or people who dressed and lived in contrast to their gender assigned at birth, either part-time or full-time. Um, contemporaneous non-nomenclature classified them as transvestites, and they were the most visible repre representatives of sexual minorities. They believed they carefully crafted image portrayed by the Madison Society and DOB that asserted homosexuals were respectable, normal people. The Madison and DOB considered the trials of being arrested for wearing clothing of the opposite gender as parallel to struggles of homophile organizations, similar but distinctly separate. Gay, lesbian, bisexual, and trans people, transgender people staged a small riot at the Cooper Donuts Cafe in Los Angeles in 1959 in response to police harassment. In a larger 1966 event in San Francisco, drag queens, hustlers, and trans women were sitting in Compton's cafeteria when the police arrived to arrest people appearing to be physically male who were dressed as a woman. A riot ensued with the cafeteria patrons slinging cups, plates, and saucers and breaking the, plexi the plexiglass windows in front of the restaurant and returning several days later to smash windows again after they were replaced. Professor Susan Stryker classifies the Compton's Cafeteria riot as an act of anti-transgender discrimination rather than an act of discrimination against sexual orientation and connects the uprising to the issue of gender, race, and class that were being downplayed by the homophile organizations. It marked the beginning of transgender activism in San Francisco. Greenwich Village The Manhattan neighborhoods of Greenwich Village and Harlem were home to sizable gay and lesbian populations after World War I, when people who had served in the military took advantage of the opportunity to settle in larger cities. The enclaves of gay, of gay men and lesbians described by a newspaper story as, quote, short-haired women and long-haired men, unquote, developed a distinct subculture through the following two decades. Prohibition inadvertently benefited gay establishments as drinking alcohol was pushed underground along with other behaviors considered immoral. New York City passed laws against homosexuality in public and private businesses, but because alcohol was in high demand, speakeasies and impromptu drinking establishments were so numerous and temporary that authorities were unable to police them all. However, police raids continued, resulting in the closure of iconic establishments such as Eve's Hangout in 1926. The social, the social rep repression of the 1950s resulted in a cultural revolution in Greenwich Village. A cohort of poets, later named the Beat Poets, 
wrote about the evils of the, of the social organization at the time, glorifying anarchy, drugs, and hedonistic pleasures over unquestioning social compliance, consumerism, and closed-mindedness. Mind, closed of them, Allen Ginsberg and William S. Burroughs, both Greenwich Village residents, also wrote bluntly and honestly about homosexuality. Their writings attracted sympathetic, liberal-minded people, as well as homosexuals looking for a community. By the early 1960s, a campaign to get rid to rid New York of city of gay bars was in full effect by order of Mayor Robert F. Wagner Jr., who was concerned about the image of the city in preparation for the 1964 World's Fair. The city revoked the liquor licenses of the bars and undercover police officers worked to entrap as many homosexual men as possible. Entrapment usually consisted of undercover officer who found a man in a bar or public park engaged in a conversation and the conversation headed toward the possibility that they might leave together or the officer bought the man a drink he was arrested for solicitation one story in the new york post described an arrest in a gym locker room where the officer grabbed his crotch moaning and a man who asked him if he was all right if he was all right was arrested few lawyers would def would define cases um as undesirable as these, and some of those lawyers kicked back their fees to arresting officer, to the arresting officer. The Madison Society succeeded in getting newly elected mayor John Lindsay to end the campaign of police entrapment in New York City. They had a more difficult time with the New York State Liquor Authority. While no laws prohibited homosexuals, courts allowed the SLA discretion in approving and revoking liquor licenses for businesses that might become disorderly. Despite the high population of gay men and lesbians who called Greenwich Village home, very few places existed other than bars where they were able to congregate openly without being harassed or arrested. In 1966, the New York Madison held a, a sip-in at a Greenwich Village bar named Julius, which was frequented by gay men to illustrate the discrimination homosexuals faced. None of the bars frequented by gay men and lesbians were owned by gay people. Almost all of them were owned and controlled by organized crime, who treated the regulars poorly, watered down the liquor, and overcharged for drinks. However, they also paid off police to prevent frequent raids. The Stonewall Inn The Stonewall Inn, located at 51 and 53 Christopher Street, along with several other establishments in the city, was owned by the Genovese crime family. In 1966, three members of the Mafia invested $3,500 to turn the Stonewall Inn into a gay bar after it, had, after it had been a restaurant and a nightclub for heterosexuals. Once a week, a police officer would collect envelopes of cash as a payoff known as Gayola, as the Stonewall Inn had no liquor license. It had no running water behind the bar, dirty glasses were run through tubs of water and immediately reused, there were no fire exits, and the toilets overran constant, consistently. Though the bar was not used for prostitution, drug sales, or and and, and other cash transactions took place. Um, uh, it was the only bar for gay men in New York City where dancing was allowed. Dancing was its main draw since its reopening as a gay club. Visitors to the Stonewall Inn in 1969 were greeted by a bouncer who inspected them through a peephole in the door. The legal drinking age was 18, and to avoid unwitting unwittingly letting in undercover police who were called the Lily Law, Alice Blue Gown, or Betty Badge. Visitors would have to be known by the doorman or look gay. 
the entrance fee on weekends was $3, for which the customer received two tickets that could be exchanged for two drinks. Patients were required to sign their names in, in a book to prove that the bar was a private bottle club, but rarely signed their real names. There were, there were two dance floors in the stone wall. The interior was painted black, making it very dark inside, with pulsing gel lights or black lights. If police were spotted, regular white lights were turned on, signaling that everyone should stop dancing or touching. In the rear of the bar was a f smaller room frequented by queens. It was one of the two bars where effeminate men who wore makeup and teeth their hair, though dressed in men's clothing, could go. Only a few transvestites and men in full drag were allowed in by the bouncers. The customers were 98% male, but a few lesbians sometimes came to the bar. Younger homeless adolescent males who slept in nearby Christopher Park would often try to get in so customers would buy them drinks. The age of clientele ranged between the upper teens and early 30s, and the racial mix was evenly distributed among white, black, and Hispanic patrons. Because of its even mix of people, its location, and the attraction of dancing, the Stonewall Inn was known by many as the gay bar in the city. As THE gay bar in the city. Police raids on gay bars were frequent, occurring on average once a month for each bar. Many bars kept extra liquor in a secret panel behind the bar or in a car down the block to facilitate resuming business as quickly as possible if alcohol was seized. Bar management usually knew about raids beforehand due to police tip-offs and raids occurred early enough in the evening that businesses could commence after the police had finished. During a typical raid, the lights were turned on and customers were lined up and, the, and their identification cards checked. Those without identification or dressed in full drag were arrested. Others were allowed to leave. Some of the men, including those in drag, used their draft cards as an identification. Women were required to wear three pieces of feminine clothing and would be arrested if, not, if found not wearing them. Employees and management of the bars were so typically arrested, were also typically arrested. The period immediately before June 28, 1969 was marked by frequent raids on local bars, including a raid at the Stonewall Inn on the Tuesday before the riots, and the closing of the Checkerboard, the Telstar, and two other clubs in Greenwich Village. And now we're finally talking about the riots themselves, so buckle up. It's going to get crazy. Uh, police raid. At 1.20 a.m. on Saturday, June 28, 1969, four plainclothes policemen in dark suits, two patrol officers in uniform, and Detective Charles Smythe and, and Deputy Inspector Seymour Pine arrived at the Stonewall Inn's double doors and announced police were taking the place. Stonewall employees did not recall being tipped off that a raid was to occur that night, as was the custom, according to Doberman, page 194. There was a rumor that one might happen, but since it was much later than raids generally took place, Stonewall management thought the tip was inaccurate. Historian David Carter pres present, like, presents information indicating that the mafia owners of the Stonewall and the manager were blackmailing wealthier customers, particularly those who worked in the financial district. They appeared to be making more money from extortion than they were from the liquor sales in the bar. Carter deduces that the, when the police were unable to receive kickbacks from the blackmail and the theft of, negoti of negotiable bonds facilitated by pressuring gay Wall Street customers, they decided to close the Stonewall Inn permanently. Two undercover policewomen and two undercover policemen en had entered the bar earlier that evening to gather visual evidence as the public morale squad waited outside of the, for the signal. 
Once inside, they called for backup um, from the 6th precinct using the bar's pay telephone. The music was turned off and the main lights were turned on. Approximately 205 people were in the bar that night. Patrons who had never experienced the police raid were confused. A few who realized what was happening began to run for the doors and windows in the bathrooms where police barred the doors. Michael Fader remembered, um, quote, Things happen so fast, you kind of got caught not knowing. All of a sudden, there were police there, and we were told to get to all get in lines and to have our identification ready to be laid out on the bar, um, end quote. The raid did not go as planned. Standard procedure was to line up, the, line up the patrons, check their identification, and have female police officers take the customers dressed as women to the bathroom to verify their sex, upon which any people appearing to be physically male and dressed as women would be arrested. Those dressed as women that, that night refused to go with the officers. Men in line began to refuse to, to produce their identification. The police decided to take everyone present to the police station after separating those cross-dressing in a room in the back of the bar. Maria Ritter, then known as male to her family, recalled, quote, My biggest fear was that I would get arrested. My second biggest fear was that my picture would be in a newspaper or on a television report in my mother's dress, unquote. Both patrons and police recalled that a sense of discomfort spread very quickly, spurred by police who began to assault some of the lesbians by, quote, feeling some of them up inappropriate, unquote, while frisking them. Um, the police were to transport the bar's alcohol in patrol wagons. 28 cases of beer and 19 bottles of hard liquor were seized, but the patrol wagons had not yet arrived, so patrons were required to wait in line for about 15 minutes. Those who were not arrested were released from the front door, but they did not leave as quickly as, they, as usual. Instead, they stopped outside and a crowd began to grow and watch. Within, 15, within minutes, between 100 and 150 people had congregated outside, some after they were released from, the inside, of, from inside the stone wall, and, after, and some after noticing the police cars in the crowd, and, and the crowd. Although the police forcefully pushed or kicked some patrons out of the bar, some customers released by the police performed for the crowd by posing and saluting the police in an exaggerated fashion. The crowd's applause encouraged them further. Wrists were limp, hair was primmed, and reactions to the applause were classic. When the first patrol wagon arrived... Oh, what the hell was that? When the first patrol wagon arrived... Inspector Pine recalled that the crowd, most of whom were homosexual, had grown to at least 10 times the number of people who were arrested, and they all became very quiet. Confusion over radio communication delayed the arrival of a second wagon. The police began escorting mafia members into the first wagon to, to the cheers of the bystanders. Next, regular employees who were loaded, were loaded into the wagon. A bystander shouted, Gay power! Someone began singing, We Shall Overcome, and the crowd reacted with amusement and general good humor mixed with growing and intense hostility. An officer shoved the transvestite who responded by hitting him on the head with her purse as the crowd began to boo. Author Edmund White, who had been passing by, recalled, Everyone's restless, angry, and high-spirited. No one has a slogan, no one, has ever had an, no one even has an attitude, but something's brewing. Pennies, then beer bottles, were thrown at the wagon as a, as a rumor spread through the crowd that patrons inside the bar were being beaten. A scuffle broke out when a woman in handcuffs was escorted from the door of the bar to the waiting police wagon several times. She escaped repeatedly and fought with four, four of the police, 
swearing and shouting for about 10 minutes describing as described as quote a typical new york butch unquote and quote a dyke stone butch unquote she had been hit on the head by an officer with a baton for as one of the witnesses claimed complaining that her handcuffs were too tight bystanders recalled the woman um, recall that the woman whose identity remains unknown, Stormé de la Vier, has been identified by some, including herself, as the woman, but accounts vary, sparked the crowd to fight when she sh- when she looked at the bystanders and shouted, Why don't you guys do something? After an officer picked her up and heaved her into the back of a wagon, the crowd became a mob and went berserk. It was at that moment that the scene became explosive. Violence breaks out. The police tried to restrain some of the crowd, knocking a few people down, which incited bystanders even more. Some of those handcuffed in the wagon escaped when police left them unattended, deliberately according to some witnesses. As the crowd tried to overturn the police wagon, two police cars and the wagon with a few slashed tires left immediately, with Inspector Pine urging them to return as soon as possible. The commotion attracted more people who learned that that was learned what was happening. Some in the crowd declared that the bar had been raided because, quote, they didn't pay off the cops, unquote. To which someone someone else yelled, Let, let's pay them off. Coins sailed through the air towards the police as the crowd shouted pigs and F-word cops. Uh, beer cans were thrown and the police lashed out, dispersing some of the crowd who found a construction site nearby with sacks of bricks. The police, outnumbered by between 500 and 600 people, grabbed several people, including folk singer and mentor Bob Dylan, Dave Van Ronk, who had been attracted to the revolt from a bar two doors down from the Stonewall. Though Van Ronk was not gay, he had experienced police violence when he he participated in anti-war demonstrations. Um, Quote, as far as I was concerned, anybody who'd stand against the cops was alright with me, and that's why I stayed in. Every time you turned around, the cops were pulling some outrage or another, unquote. Van Ronk was one of the was one of thirteen arrested that night. Ten police officers, including two policewomen, barricaded themselves. Van Ronk, Howard Smith, a columnist for the Village Voice, and several handcuffed detainees inside the Stonewall Inn for their own safety. Multiple accounts of the riots ass- assert that there was no pre-existing organization or apparent cause for the demonstration. What ensued was spontaneous, Michael Fader explained. We all had a collective feeling like we had enough of this kind of shit. It wasn't e- it wasn't anything tangible. Anybody said it wasn't anything tangible anybody had said to any anyone else. It was just kind of like everything over the years had come to head on had come to a head on that one particular night in that one particular place. And it was not an organized demonstration. Everyone in the crowd felt that they were never going to go... Everyone in the crowd felt that we were never going to go back. It was like the last straw. It was the time to reclaim something that had always been taken from us. All kinds of people, all different reasons, but mostly it was outrage and anger, sorrow, everything combined and everything just kind of ran its course. It was the police who were doing most of the destruction. We were really trying to get back and be and break free. And we felt that we had freedom at last, or freedom to at least show that we demanded freedom. We weren't going to walk going to be walking meekly in the night and letting them shove us around. It's like standing your ground for the first time in a re- in, in a really strong way, and that's what caught the police by surprise. There was a long um there was something in the air. 
freedom. There was something in the air. Freedom a long time overdue, and we're going to fight for it. It took different forms, but the bottom line was we weren't going to go away, and we didn't. The only known photograph taken during the first night of riots shows the homeless youth who slept in nearby Christopher Park scuffling with police. The Madison Society newsletter a month later offered its explanation of why the riots occurred. Quote, It catered largely to a group of people who are not welcome in and cannot afford other places of homosexual social gathering. The Stonewall became home to these kids. When it was raided, they fought for it. That and the fact that they had nothing to lose other than the most tolerant and broad-minded gay place in town explains why. Unquote. Garbage cans, garbage, bottles, rocks, and bricks were hurled at the building, breaking the windows. Breaking the windows. Witnesses attest that flame queens, hustlers, and gay street kids, the most outcast people in the gay community, were responsible for the volley of projectiles, as well as the uprooting of a park parking meter used as a battering ram on the door of the Stonewall Inn. Sylvia Rivera, a self-identified, a, self, a self-identified street queen, remembered, You've been treating us like shit all these years? Uh-uh, now it's your turn. Now it's our turn. It was one of the greatest moments of my life. The mob lit garbage on fire and stuffed it through the broken windows as the police grabbed a fire hose. Because it had no water pressure, the hose was ineffective in dispersing the crowd and seemed only to encourage them. Escalation. The tactical pol- the tactical patrol force, or the TPF, of the New York City Police Department arrived to free the police trapped inside the stone wall. One officer's eye was cut and a few others were bruised from being struck by flying debris. Bob Kohler, who was walking his dog by the stone wall that night, saw the TPF arrive. Quote, I had been in enough riots to know that the fun was over. The cops were totally humiliated. This never ever happened. They were angrier than I guess they had ever been because everyone else had rioted. But the fairies were not supposed to riot. No group had ever forced cops to retreat before. So the anger was just enormous. I mean, they wanted to kill, unquote. With larger numbers, police detained anyone they could and put them in patrol wagons to go to jail. Though Inspector Pine recalled, quote, Fights erupted with the transvestites who could who wouldn't go into the patrol wagon, unquote. His recollection um, was corroborated by another witness across the street who said, quote, All I could see about who was fighting was that it was transvestites and they were fighting furiously, unquote. The TPF formed a fail a phalanac? What the hell is that? Wait, wait, hold on, what is this word? Oh, military formation. Okay, weird word to use, but sure. Um, God damn it, now I have to go back down. Hold on. Sorry, sorry, guys. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, Where'd you go? Where'd you go? Where'd you go? Okay, right here. Uh, no. Right, yeah, right here. Okay. Um, the TPF formed a military formation and attempted to clear the streets by marching slowly and pushing the crowd black the crowd back. My god, I can't speak today. The mob openly mocked the police. The crowd cheered, started impromptu kick lines, and sang the tune of Tara Raboumdier. We are the Stonewall girls. We he- we wear our hair in curls. We don't wear underwear. We show our pubic hair. Reported in the Village Voice. A stagnant situation there... A st- wait, quote. 
A stagnant situation there brought on some gay tomfoolery in the form of a chorus line facing the line of helmeted and club-carrying cops. Just as the line got into a full kick routine, the TPF advanced again and cleared the crowd of screaming gay power um, down Christopher to 7th Avenue. Unquote. One participant who had been in the Stonewall during the riot during the raid recalled, quote, The police rushed us and that's when I realized this is not a good thing to do because they got me in the back with a nightstick. Unquote. Another account said, quote, I just can't get over the f- I just can't ever get that one night that one sight out of my head. The cops with the nightsticks and the kick line on the other side. It was the it was one of the most amazing things. Um and all and and all of a sudden, that kick line, which I guess was a spoof of the machismo, I think that's when I felt rage, because people were getting smashed with bats. And for what? And for what? A kick line. Unquote. Um, uh, yes. Craig Rodwell, owner of the Oscar Wilde Memorial Bookshop, reported watching police chase participants through the crooked streets, only to see them appear around the next corner behind the police. Members of the mob stopped cars, overturning one of them to block Christopher Street. Jack Nicholas and Liege Clark, in their column printed in Screw, declared that, quote, massive crowds of angry protesters chased the police for blocks, screaming, catch them, unquote. By 4 a.m., the streets had nearly been cleared. Many people sat on stoops or gathered nearby in Christopher Park throughout the morning, dazed in disbelief at what had just transpired. Many witnesses remembered the surreal and eerie quiet that descended upon Christopher Street, though there continued to be electricity in the air. One commented, quote, There was a certain beauty in the aftermath of the riot. It was obvious, at least to me, that a lot of people really were gay, and you know, you know, this was our street, unquote. Thirteen people had been arrested. Some in the crowd were hospitalized, and four police officers were injured. Almost everything in the Stonewall Inn was broken. Inspector Pine had intended to close and dismantle the Stonewall Inn that night. Payphones, toilets, mirrors, jukeboxes, and cigarette machines were all smashed, possibly in the riot and possibly by the police. A second night of rioting. During the siege of the Stonewall, Craig Rodwell called the New York Times, the New York Post, and the Daily News to inform them what was happening. All three papers covered the riots. The Daily News placed coverage of, on the front page. News of the riot spread quickly throughout Greenwich Village, fueled by rumors that it had been organized by the students of a democratic society, the Black Panthers, or triggered by, quote, a homosexual police officer whose roommate went dancing at the Stonewall against the officer's wishes, unquote. All day Saturday, June 28th, people came to stare at the burned and blackened Stonewall Inn. Graffiti appeared on the walls of the bar declaring drag power. They invaded our rights, support gay power, and legalize gay bars, along with accusations of police looting and regarding the state, the status of the bar, we are open. The next night, rioting again surrounded Christopher Street. Participants remind, remember differently which night was more frantic or violent. Many of, the, many of the same people returned from the previous evening, hustlers, street youths, and queens, but they were joined by police pr- provo- pro- provocators, um, curious bystanders, and even tourists. Remarkable to many was the sudden exhibition of homosexual affection in public, as described by one witness, quote, from going, to place, from going to places where you had to knock on a door and speak to someone through a peephole in order to get in, we were just out. 
We were in the streets, unquote. Thousands of people had gathered in front of the stone wall, which had opened again, choking Christopher Street until crowds spilled into the adjoining blocks. The throng surrounded buses and cars, harassing the occupants unless they either admitted they were gay or indicated their support for the, demonstrator, for the demonstrators. Sylvia Rivera saw a friend of hers jump on a nearby car trying to drive through. The crowd rocked the car back and forth, terrifying its occupants. Another of Rivera's friends, Marsha P. Johnson, an African-American street queen, climbed a lamppost and dropped a heavy bag onto the hood of a police car, shattering the windshield. As on the previous evening, fires were started in garbage cans throughout the neighborhood. More than a more than a hundred police were present from the fourth, fifth, sixth, and ninth precincts. But after two a.m., the TPF arrived again. Kick lines and police chases were waxed and waned. When police out, when police captured demonstrators, whom the majority of witnesses described as sissy, sissies or swishes, the crowd surged to recapture them. Street battling ensued again until four a.m. Beat poet and longtime Greenwich Village resident Allen Ginsberg lived on Christopher Street and happened upon the jubilant chaos. After he learned of the riot that had occurred the previous evening, he stated, Gay power, isn't that great? It's about time we did something to assert ourselves. And, visit, and visited the, the open Stonewall Inn for the first time. While walking home, he declared to Lucan Truscott, quote, You know, the guys there were so beautiful. They've lost that wounded look that F-words all had 10 years ago. Leaflets, press, com press coverage, and more violence. Activity in Greenwich Village was sporadic on Monday and Tuesday, partly due to rain. Police village residents and, uh, had a few altercations as both groups antagonized each other. Craig Wadwell and his partner, Fred Sargent, took the opportunity the morning after the first riot to print and distribute 5,000 leaflets, one of them reading, Get the Mafia and the Cops out of the, out of the Gay Bars. The leaflets called for gay people to own their own establishments, for a boycott of the Stonewall and other Mafia-owned bars, and for public pressure of the, on the mayor's office to investigate the, quote, intolerable situation, unquote. Not everyone in the, came, in the gay community considered the revolt to be a positive development. To many older homosexuals and many members of the Madison Society who had worked throughout the 1960s to promote homosexuals as no different from heterosexuals, the display of violence and effeminate behavior was embarrassing. Randy Wicker, who had marched in the first gay picket lines before the White House in 1965, said, the, said that, quote, Screaming queens, forming chorus lines, and kicking went against everything that I wanted people to think about homosexuals. That were a that we were a bunch of drag queens in the village acting disorderly and tacky and cheap, unquote. Others found the closing of the Stonewall Inn termed a sleaze joint as advantageous to the village. On Wednesday, however, the Village Voice in, the Village Voice ran reports of the riots written by Howard Smith and Lucian Truscott the, that included unflattering de descriptions of the events as and its participants, quote, Forces of F-word, limperists, and Sunday F-word follies. A mob descended upon Christopher Street once again and threatened to burn down the offices of the Village Voice. Also in the mob of between 500 and 1,000 were other groups that had, unsuccessfully that had unsuccessful confrontations with the police and were curious how the police were defeated in this situation. 
Another explosive street battle took place, with injuries to demonstrators and police alike, looting in local shops and arrests and the arrests of five people. The incidents on Wednesday night lashed up lasted about an hour and were summarized by one witness as quote the word is out christopher street shall be liberated um uh the gays have had it with oppression um yes um so yeah we're gonna i'm gonna end i'm gonna end this here i'm gonna end this episode here i'm gonna do a part two of the Stonewall tomorrow, we're going to talk about the after effects, the legacy, and um, what it and what Stonewall has done for people um, to this very day. But as you just heard and as you've just experienced, the Stonewall uprising was a chaotic, messy, over-the-top demonstration that seemingly came from a moment of realization that. We don't have to put up with this shit. We can fight back. We can prove that we do deserve to be treated just like everybody else. And we don't have to be treated weirdly just because we happen to be a little bit different from other people. Um, and I find it hilarious that um, a bunch of the very early uh, activists group, activist groups put such an emphasis on assimilation and being no different from other people that they kind of forgot that they were different that they weren't what society deemed as normal they were different they were outside of the norm and people forget that a lot but uh you know it happens but, um, yes, I'm so glad that people still remember the Stonewall in vivid detail and that I'm able to tell this story to so many people because the Stonewall is, I'm not joking, it's going to be one of those events that even 20 years from now, people are going to look back and say, like, that was the event that started everything. That no matter how far we get, we have to remember where we come from, we have to remember where we started. Uh, but yes, thank you so much for listening to this longer episode. I haven't done an episode this long in a while, but there was a lot of information. Um, so tomorrow we will talk about the after effects of Stonewall, the legacy it's left behind, and we will talk about the Stonewall National Monument following up with our closing ceremonies on Tuesday. But um, thank you all so much for listening. Ending affirmations, as always. You are loved, you are seen, you are valid, you are heard. Keep doing you keep existing keep being your unique ball of sunshine self very proud of you keep fighting you've got this also donate protest educate things have things are crazy right now in the world things are only going to get crazier but keep going keep pushing keep fighting you've guys got this i believe in you you we can make a change and it'll take a while but it'll happen. Look, look at what we just talked about. Stonewall happened 50 years ago. And changes are still being made. And still being fought for. So progress does not happen overnight. It takes a while. But it, it happens. Alright. Don't be discouraged. Keep fighting. Keep going out there. And, and speaking up for what you believe in. Alright. You got this. But uh, yes. Thank you all so much for listening. And I will see you guys tomorrow.